Good evening, and welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Nate, and I'm joined by my co-host, JM. How are you doing tonight? Hello. Doing pretty good. Pretty good. How are you? Great. We have a very nice collection of stories tonight. Yeah. In fact, we are focusing solely on short stories. I really like these ones. Yeah. These are really good. <laughs> Definitely really good overall. The last time we took a look at short stories was in episode four. But in that episode, we really focused on early short stories. I think the hard limit we gave ourselves for that episode was an upper bound of 1860, but most of the stuff we covered then was in like the 1830s and 1840s. The stories we've been covering in the last couple episodes are much more, I wouldn't say they're recent, but they're later in the 19th century. And the publishing landscape changed quite a bit from the early 1800s to the later 1800s going into the 20th century. And part of that was due to the rise of popular magazines and the, I guess, creation of pulp magazines and genre magazines around the turn of the century. So we'd like to give a brief history of the magazine industry for this segment. We consulted Mike Ashley's book, Time Machines, the story of the science fiction pulp magazines from the beginning to 1950, as well as the Sam Moskowitz anthology, Science Fiction by Gaslight, a history and anthology of science fiction in the popular magazines from 1891 to 1911, which has a historical intro at the beginning, and both texts are very good at covering this period. So the earliest use of the term magazine comes from Arabic, meaning a place for stores, and it was imported into the French literary world in the 1600s, the first magazine being Le Journal des Savants out of Paris from 1665. And magazine is actually a common French word for a store. Right, it is in many languages. It's the same word in Russian which yeah. takes a lot of loan words from French and certain places as well as German. And it's actually quite interesting how words like that spread through Europe as the concepts emerge. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But this 17th century French magazine was a collection of articles from various natural philosophers, scientists, and other learned men of the time. And while it went through various phases of ownership and was taken over by the state, It published largely continuously to the present day, aside from a 20-plus year period between 1792 and 1816 when it was shut down, though there was quite a lot going on in France at that time, so uh, you can possibly understand why. (laughs) Despite the fact that it started off publishing these kind of natural philosophy type essays and reports and things like that, fantastic and speculative fiction appeared pretty early in the magazine format alongside these philosophical treatises. Rather early, the British took up the magazine format, one of the earliest British magazines being Gentleman's Magazine, founded in 1731. And as America was part of the British Empire at the time, the American magazine industry was also quite tied to what was going on in Britain, with Benjamin Franklin's 1741 General Magazine being an early example of what was happening in the Americas. During this time, fantastic and supernatural fiction was much more common than what we would consider science or speculative fiction today. There were even some publications largely dedicated to gothic novels and installments. One of these was The Marvelous Magazine, which was founded in 1802. One of the most influential British magazines from around the early 
19th century was Blackwoods, which was founded in 1817. And this gave rise to numerous other similar magazines in the 1830s, such as Frazier's from 1830, the Metropolitan Magazine, 1831, Edinburgh Journal from 1832, and Penny Magazine from 1832. And these made it rather commonplace for gothic fiction to appear everywhere that Edgar Allan Poe lampooned the whole scene with yeah. a 1838 short story, How to Write a Blackwood Article. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah. I think I might have mentioned that on the podcast before. It's a, a story about a girl who's supposed to write about her experiences of drowning. Right. <laughs> so I guess it published a lot of this cheap horror fiction and, and gothic fiction. Poe was a major figure himself in the 1830s for magazine short story fiction, as he was published in numerous publications. Too many to name here, but some notable ones include Godey's Ladies Book, a women's magazine which had a circulation of roughly 70,000 in the 1840s, as well as the Southern Literary Messenger and the Flag of Our Union. Despite the fact that he was widely published in American magazines of the time, the major American magazines that largely still survived to this day came in the 1850s after his death, which include Harper's, founded in 1850, Putnam's, founded in 1853, and The Atlantic in 1857. Great Britain and America at the time hit milestone subscription levels of 100,000. Cornhill Magazine in 1860, which was edited by Thackeray, hit 100,000 subscriptions, and Godey's Lady Book also hit 100,000 subscriptions at around the same time. So these were pretty popular and had a very wide readership base. So anything published in the magazine was going to be read by tens of thousands of people. And getting that kind of national publicity for an author really drive sales of other works as well as, I guess, sort of advance the medium in general, putting this, when it appears, strange science fiction-y pulp stuff in front of a lot of eyes. One of the biggest past Poe to really appear in a wide variety of magazines and really be in international sensation was Jules Verne. And his publisher, Hetzel, had a magazine, a magazine de education, a de recreation. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to pronounce that in the French correctly. I'd help you, but I didn't write it down. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hetzel's magazine was founded in 1864, which was primarily as a vehicle to publish the illustrated editions of Jules Verne's novels in serial form. And Verne saw almost no money for them, but... He was contracted to churn them out at an incredibly fast pace, so there was always new content for this magazine. And Hetzel himself was tied to many international magazine publishers, allowing Fern's work to spread very easily to America, England, and other places in continental Europe. And I think we've seen already that his novels were a major success everywhere, and it really demonstrated the viability of some kind of market for this fiction to thrive and be commercially successful. One of the more popular novels we see post-Verne to appear in magazines was the British novel The Battle of Dorking, which was published in Blackwoods in May of 1871. And it was enormously popular, credited as the first invasion novel, typically inspiring not only War of the Worlds, but several other reactionary pieces of fiction 
in that year alone, 1871. Yeah, and it was definitely speculative fiction. It didn't include aliens or anything like that. Right. uh, It was speculating about uh, how dangerous the the Germans were becoming. Right, and I think like War of the Worlds, or at least the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds, it really scared a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I think you can see that in the amount of work published referencing that in the same year it came out. Kind of incredible if you, if you think about it. Yeah. But around the same time, the American genre, or I guess the American science fiction you would see at the time in magazines, was more oriented towards a juvenile audience. These magazines were typically vehicles for dime novels in the 1880s and 1890s, which were kind of equally influenced by Jules Verne and Steam Man of the Prairies, which was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, science fiction-y dime novel from America. And we did cover that in episode 7, I believe, of the podcast. Yeah, and we're certainly going to be covering some stuff left in its wake in the Edison 8 episode that we're going to do down the line. But one of the earliest popular pulp magazines for this kind of stuff was the Golden Argosy, which was published by Frank Muncy initially in 1882. And it largely included juvenile fiction, including stuff by Edward S. Ellis, the author of Steam Man of the Prairies. Um, though he wrote hundreds and hundreds of works, so there was no shortage of other stuff for him to go through this cheap pulp format magazine. They dropped the Golden in 1888 and became just Argozy, shifting towards more adult fiction. Another one of Fred Muncy's publication, just called Muncy's, followed in 1889 with a similar scope publishing novels short stories and poetry. And in 1905, Muncie launched All Story. And these magazines kind of fold in and out of one another over the next couple decades. In Britain, I think the publications were oriented less towards a juvenile audience. The magazine The Strand was founded in 1891, which did have more of a speculative bent in certain stories, but was largely literature in general, not necessarily genre fiction. But it did have a large amount of illustrations similar to Hetzel's approach. A lot of H.G. Wells stuff was published in the Strand magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of big authors were published in the Strand. So issue number one of the Strand contains a fair amount of European fiction from the previous decades. Dumas, Lermontov, Voltaire, Balzac's Passion in the Desert, which... I was pretty surprised to read that in there. That's uh, that's one of his best stories, cool. as well as two Pushkin stories. Oh. But there were a number of English authors in there. The only one I recognized was Arthur Conan Doyle, oh, whose yes. short story, The Voice of Science, appeared in that first issue of The Strand. But more famously, in July of 1891, The Strand publishes a short story by Doyle, A Scandal in Bohemia, which was the third Sherlock Holmes story, but the first to be incredibly, incredibly successful. And it was pretty much an instant success for both the magazine and Doyle. Between July and December of that year, six Sherlock stories were published. And while Doyle was beginning to lose interest in the story and the character, it was pretty clear that it was a huge moneymaker for him. So he was able to demand very high prices for his appearances in the strand. Yeah, he kept jacking up the fee up and up, and he wrote right. in one of his letters like, "Well, I'm thinking that one of these days he's just going to say no, but yeah. he hasn't yet." So yeah, yeah. Since they were such huge sellers, the magazine could afford to pay him that much, and and they did because they know they'd keep getting what was in 
very, very high demand. They also published translation of Verne, and the illustrations really helped sales as well. Later on, the Strand began running a regular segment called The Queer Side of Things, where they would focus more on science fiction-y, weird fiction-type stories. This format inspired other similar magazines, including Ludgate Monthly from 1891. There was also the Idler's Club, first published in 1892, which also published various Doyle stories, as well as Mark Twain, Kipling, and others. A whole bunch of other magazines, Pall Mall, The Windsor, that are doing more or less similar things. Regularly serializing novels, Griffith, Wells, and Doyle all had their stuff serialized in various magazines. The Time Machine was published in the New Review from January to May of 1895, which was another major, major success. In addition to the British and American stuff, numerous magazines of the same sort pop up in Germany, Sweden, Russia, Spain, Latin America, and elsewhere. And by the turn of the century, pulps were including more and more science fiction stories with Roughly 150 science fiction stories between 1905 and 1911, published in just three magazines, Argo C, All Story, and The Cavalier. By 1912, there were major serialized publications by Burroughs of his 1912 Princess of Mars and Tarzan of the Apes in All Story magazine and At the Earth's Core from 1914, which we covered in the second Hollow Earth episode, and we're going to cover Princess of Mars in a future one. I don't think we're going to do Tarzan, but it was yeah, probably not. a major, again, a major, major success, and the character is still popular to this day. Doyle saw his Lost World serialized <laughs> in The Strand in 1912, but perhaps most importantly around this time was 1911, where Gernsback's first novel, Ralph 124C for Another, was serialized in Modern Electronics. Which apparently is supposed to be a terrible novel. Yeah, I haven't read it. But no, I haven't read it either. <laughs> I haven't read any Hugo stuff. Yeah. I think he's he's no more for starting a couple of important magazines than yes. as an actual writer. Yeah, Gernsback had a huge magazine publishing empire, including many nonfiction engineering magazines, such as Radio News and other things that were relevant to hobbyists. Radio was certainly a big thing at the time because it was very easy to work with simpler circuits like that, and you could buy the parts at hardware stores, and there was a whole hobbyist community dedicated to that. So piggybacking on the success, he also included a number of fiction magazines in his publishing repertoire, which the, I guess, most important is Amazing Stories, first published in 1926, which is the first magazine solely devoted to just science fiction though at the time it wasn't called science fiction i believe he called it scientific yeah but i think the term scientific romance was already in use yeah but yeah this scientific i mean we saw it actually taken up by c.s lewis so the term right. obviously got around a little bit but thankfully it died yeah <laughs> and was replaced with something a bit less difficult for the tongue yeah and we're going to be focusing on the wake that amazing created and the post-amazing stuff in a later episode. So here, I think, is where our history is going to stop, as tonight's stories are going to be focusing on the years 1888 to 1925, starting just before magazines like The Strand start to take off and ending just before Amazing gets going. Right. But despite that intro, we're actually going to be focusing on two 
short stories tonight that did not appear in magazines, but I think are very worth examining. Yeah, we just think they're of the right time period and they're important enough to cover. And the first one is one of my favorite stories. So we're going to talk about it now. And this story is one that has become justifiably famous, I think. It's called The Repair of Reputations, written by Robert William Chambers. Mm -hmm. 